Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Luke Banke, alongside my co-host, Jack Sanker. For those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where we recap the most interesting legal news stories and talk about what you need to know. Jack, what have you got today? So Ed Sheeran, he's not liable for copyright infringement against Marvin Gaye after taking the stand in his defense and teaching the jury a bit of music theory. Montana enacts new legislation regulating third-party litigation funding in that state, and the oldest active U.S. federal judge sues to halt the competency probe against her. Luke, you remember the McDonald's hot coffee case from the 90s? Well, we've got a new one, uh, and we'll be covering that today as well. All that and more coming your way. Here's what you need to know. Up first, a rare intellectual property law story on this show, but this is kind of a fun one. Ed Sheeran was recently sued for copyright infringement over a Marvin Gaye song. Specifically, he was accused of copying uh, a musical chord progression from Marvin Gaye's classic Let's Get It On with his 2014 song Thinking Out Loud. Now, I know artists regularly sue each other for this kind of stuff. Basically, when a song sounds too much like another song, the original artist or whomever has the rights to the original artist's music can sue for copyright infringement to grab a piece of the, re- the revenue that the new song may be generating. And that's generally what happened here. Anyways, I wanted to share the story because of how Ed Sheeran defended himself at trial. Now, at trial, while on the stand, Sheeran actually took out his guitar and gave the jury a demonstration of chord structures and how they're being used in different songs. Specifically, he strummed a common chord progression and sang song lyrics to different songs over the same chord progression, showing that many, many pop songs borrow from each other in ways that aren't quite, quote, stealing. And I just want to play a clip for you all here of him being interviewed by Howard Stern after the fact where he kind of demonstrated how this testimony went. You sat down with the jury, and I think this is great, and you took out your guitar. And you said to the jury, you think I ripped off this song? I'm going to play you something now and show you how similar things can be. What did you play for that jury? Um, if I was the jury, yeah, what did you say to them? So it was, um, so my one is, um, when your legs don't work like they used to before. And then there's, have I told you lately that I loved you? And then, um, um, people get ready. There's a train coming. Um, and then, uh. What was the looks like we made it look how far we've come my baby and oh she breaks just like a woman i mean there was there was 101 songs that and that was like scratching the surface there was like 101 you know there's um uh, i guess you say it's it's really and what i was saying is like Yes, it's a chord sequence that you hear on successful songs but if you say that a song in 1973 owns this then what about all the songs that came before we found songs like from like the 1700s that had similar uh melodic stuff and then there was like huge songs in the 50s and huge songs in the 60s and it's just no one's saying that songs shouldn't be copyrighted but you just can't copyright a chord sequence you just can't it's a really cool use of demonstrative testimony to illustrate a point to a jury that i don't think a jury may have grasped unless you actually kind of played the music for them Very cool trial work, good work by Sheeran's attorneys at the firm Prior Cashman, and a good example that when you can distill your sort of complex legal argument into common sense terms, juries can make really smart decisions, even on complicated topics such as copyright infringement. And Luke, I I highlighted this because one, it's an interesting story, and two, I just think it's really good trial work here. 
I think that Sheeran's attorneys um, understood that explaining, you know, complex uh, aspects of both copyright law and music theory really in like the dry tactical terms is probably going to put the jury to sleep. Um, I can't imagine being a jury in like a copyright case. I mean, I think that sounds awful to me. Um, but when you actually explain to them, you know, this is why this matters. And here's an example of how this kind of would look in the real world. It's really compelling. I think it's a very simple argument, which is, you know, how can Marvin Gaye own the copyright to this chord progression when there's a hundred other examples and I'm going to show you them all right now. Um, I, I think that's, that's frankly really compelling testimony. Uh, and it's a compelling argument, um, for Sheeran's version of the case. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think demonstrative evidence um, can be a very powerful and persuasive thing uh, to a jury rather than getting talked at, uh, prefers to sort of see things with their own eyes. And if you can demonstrate, you know, what you're talking about for them, I think you've got a, a much higher likelihood of success, much like, you know, watching uh, surveillance in a, in a personal injury case can be pretty powerful and persuasive. One sort of similar instance that I can you know, draw upon from my experience is uh, we had this um, this forklift case uh, in in federal court, and uh, our client actually had uh, the box of this forklift, you know, kind of recreated, and we put that in front of the jury and kind of showed, you know, where uh, the operator's foot was, and the plaintiff kind of tried to use it and show, you know, where the, the foot might have been, and it was it was interesting and ultimately we were uh we were successful uh defending the uh the forklift manufacturer but that that's just a way that's an example uh in a case and i think the jury you know in that in that particular matter in this ed sheeran matter you know really appreciated kind of seeing that demonstrative evidence yeah what do they say show don't tell and, exactly uh, yeah. And this is, you know, I just think that the Sheeran, uh, you know, actually have, and by the way, you know, he's like a world famous pop star. So you as a member of the jury get, you know, your private little concert um, from, you know, a guy who sells out stadiums. Uh, I think that there's some element of, you know, reminding the jury that, hey, he's super famous again, and uh, you should be uh, starstruck in this moment. And, uh, and I hope you take that back to the deliberation room when you're thinking about whether he infringed on this copyright or not. Um, oh, no, just great trial work. Uh, it's a really cool way to demonstrate their argument in a way that makes total sense, by the way. All it takes is, you know, that 45 second clip that I played uh, and you go, oh yeah, that's a great point. It's, you know, really, really simple. I think I'm going to start all of my trials this way. So my first witness will be like Justin Bieber. Yeah. See what the Biebs <laughs> is doing. Get him up there. If you could drop a subpoena on him, bit. why not? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to win them all. For those listeners who didn't catch our last episode on litigation financing, third-party litigation financing is an arrangement where a funder who is not a party to the lawsuit agrees to help fund it. Funders are typically private firms or can be private firms operating large investment portfolios who expect to get a payout if the suit is successful. Montana becomes the latest state to enact new legislation which regulates this third-party litigation funding. The legislation in Montana requires lawsuit lenders to register in the state and makes judges, juries, and defendants aware of a third party when they're financing the litigation. The governor signed the bill into the law last week. 
And the president of the American Trucking Association says, quote, the civil justice system is not a stock market, but that is what it's becoming with the rise of third party litigation financing, close quote. He believes that this is a common sense measure and it will bring lawsuit lenders, quote, out from the shadows and make the fact finders aware that a disinterested third party has a financial stake in any verdict, close quote. Now, the president of the ATA, that's American Trucking Association, expects other states to follow Montana's lead in, quote, ensuring full transparency behind this, what he calls a perverse and shady practice, close quote. Obviously, that's one side of this uh, of this issue. Uh, proponents, uh, as we discussed in our in our last episode, uh, take it take a different approach. They contend that uh, litigation funding uh, keeps plaintiffs in the game longer, levels the playing field, and it puts uh, litigants on on equal footing with uh, defendants who uh, are often well-funded. So Jack, this is a relatively short story, and I highlighted it only because, um, you know, as we've discussed on the show, litigation financing is, is certainly on the rise. This is yet another state. I think the count is up to like maybe somewhere around 16 uh, states that are starting to regulate litigation uh, financing in some way, at least making these these litigation funders kind of disclose who they are. Um, there's been work at the federal level um, to uh, amend the the rule, the federal rules to disclose these litigation uh, financiers. Um, so it just sort of illustrates where this is going. Um, you have any thoughts that you want to add? Yeah, you know what? I I actually um, I, I do kind of have a bit of a spicy take on this. Um, so this this Montana law is requiring the the automatic disclosure of any third party litigation funding, right? That's right. Uh, and you know, it's the bill's passed, and uh, the folks in Montana whose interests um, that you know this is intending to serve are uh, celebrating. Um, what if I told you that this exact same bill was passed in Wisconsin uh, two years ago, and to my knowledge, no one cares. Um, <laughs> as someone, I mean, you practice mostly in Wisconsin. Does it even come up? Well, so I'll say this: we've we have started to include these requests in our in our discovery requests, and so you know we ask uh, we'll ask plaintiffs to identify uh, litigation uh, funders. Um, by and large, though, Jack, I will say that it hasn't. It, to my knowledge, it has not. Uh, you know, delayed resolution of a lawsuit. Uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a perverse and and shady practice, right? Uh, but you know, I, I I do think that it it at least helps us get a matter to resolution if we know who the players are, who the interested parties are. So I think it's definitely relevant, and it's it's a good uh, you know if you want to know um, who the stakeholders are what it's going to take to get a number, you know, to get, to get to a number that's going to satisfy everyone. Technically, you know, under the law, the loan providers, um, they, they technically have no right to interfere in that process, but in practice, it doesn't exactly always work that way as we know. Um, but what I, 
can tell you is in from from both of us that are doing this we actually are litigating these cases um you get that information great you know that there's a you know a loan for x amount of dollars on the, that case it's not admissible at trial it's not relevant you know you what are you going to do with that are you going to you're going to argue that oh this this plaintiff owes money uh <laughs> like that's if anything that's you know arguably sympathetic uh to a plaintiff who had to borrow money at like this loan shark rate of 30 something percent I'm not blaming the lenders, by the way, but that's that's what the rate is. Um, so, you know, I, I've seen it. I saw that in Wisconsin when this bill was passed, the, pretty much the exact same bill. And, and you know, the kind of Chamber of Commerce adjacent, like pro-business um, uh, interests kind of were celebrating. And they were saying this is going to, you know, maybe stop the influx of, of third-party finance money because now they have to show. Well, I just don't see that it has had any effect. Um, at all. <laughs> and I, I don't think it will in Montana. Um, I, you know, it's great to know, I suppose it's, it's, it's interesting to know, and it can impact maybe how you make some, a few decisions while you're actually working on a given lawsuit, but it, it is not a smoking gun. Certainly it doesn't, I don't think it helps, you know, a, def, a defense at trial very much at all. I don't think it's admissible or relevant, um, frankly. Uh, so, you know, to the extent that the folks in Montana think this is going to change things, I just don't think it will. Yeah, I'm with you. I, it's not a silver bullet. Um, I think if if progressing toward the the ultimate goal, which is to get rid of litigation financing altogether, I mean, sort of if that's what their ultimate goal is, yeah, I suppose this is a step in that direction. But we know that's not that's not even close to happening. It's the opposite well, is happening. <laughs> the opposite is happening. And that's 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 the point I was going to make. You said, look, you know, if if they thought that this would, uh, you know, scare these uh, these large funders away from funding lawsuits, you know, well, the opposite has been happening. I mean, this business is uh, from, from everything I've seen, this business is um, exploding and um, I don't see. I'm with you. I don't see mandatory disclosure as a a silver bullet for getting rid of litigation funding. In fact, I think litigation funders will probably proudly wear that on their sleeve. Yeah, it's uh, it's free advertising. Exactly. Judge Pauline Newman, who we talked about in a past episode, she's under investigation for her performance on the bench has since sued the appeals court's chief judge and others in Washington federal court seeking to block their investigation into her fitness to hold office. Newman, who our listeners may recall is 95, alleges in her complaint that the probe violates her constitutional rights, and she denied that there were legitimate concerns about her mental and physical capacity. She's asking the district court to halt or transfer the investigation. Judge Newman's lawsuit claims that the orders justifying the probe were, quote, riddled with errors, close quote, describing as false an assertion that she was hospitalized after having a heart attack in 2021. According to Reuters, Judge Newman says that she served on more appeals panels than most of her colleagues and issued at least eight opinions that summer, that's back in 2021, and that her productivity has not dropped over the past three years. The complaint further states that the committee investigating her gave her only a few days to comply with her requests 
for mental evaluations and her private medical records, which she calls a baseless invasion of her privacy. So Jack, I don't, I don't suppose that your sort of take on this has changed much since our last uh, discussion, uh, but I thought that it's only fair to kind of follow up on this and, um, and remind everybody that there are sort of two sides to every story. Uh, Judge Newman here is clearly not impressed with this, uh, with this investigation. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's good that we're at least trying to tell the other side of the story now that we have a little information. Um, and it, it does kind of beg the question, you know, is if there's something else going on here. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm way off the rails of speculating here, but it does not uh, – because one of these parties is like way wrong, and that's the only out – you know, one of them is absolutely full of it because just the way that the facts are being presented. And that to me is, you know, it, it doesn't seem like there's like a – a benign misunderstanding. It seems like one side is completely off base here. And that uh, just smells a little weird. Yeah. I mean, this kind of stuff never becomes public. And this is this is a very public spat. Um, curious to see how this ends up. I mean, that's that's sort of that's the really interesting thing here, right? If you've got this investigation into this judge and she's filing a, you know, a, a complaint um, that says that, you know, this is a baseless invasion of her privacy. Like, how do you walk any of this stuff back, Jack? I mean, this is like, what are you going to remove a federal judge from the bench, you know, and set a precedent for that? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think, again, me looking into my, my uh, crystal ball here, I, I, Judge Newman, there's no way Judge Newman is going to get removed from, from the federal, but they're not going to remove a sitting federal judge. Absolutely uh, agree. So, you know, all you've done really is, you know, call attention to this, you know, made, made this, this issue very public and um, really upset uh, someone who served for a very long time since 1984. She was, uh, she was appointed in 84 by uh, President Reagan. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, we talked about this, uh, our last episode and, you know, where there's really not a great way to to deal with this scenario um other than you know you, you hope behind closed doors if there really is you know a mental capacity issue like there there is a genuine i'm not suggesting there is here i don't know anything about this judge but if there actually is you kind of hope that folks would just sort of nudge the judge you know behind closed doors and kind of get them to voluntarily you know walk off into the sunset um to do it this way is like you know something really must have happened and for the judge to um, because if the, uh, those that are making the allegations are correct, I mean, this is the biggest example of not taking the hint that I know of in the past few years. Um, <laughs> and, and so, you know, either they're completely off base or this, or this judge who is completely aloof. And like, I doubt that's the case because one, she's a federal judge Two, I'm sure that she has attorneys and folks that are working on her behalf and she's consulting with, and who have told her that this was a good idea to file this. Um, so it, it, I don't know, man, it's really interesting to see how this happened. You don't see anything like this. I, I don't remember ever seeing anything like this before. It's, it's really, you know, dirty laundry of the federal judiciary just being aired in public. Yeah. As we outlined last time, there's, there are uh, precious few examples of federal judges being removed from the bench, uh, in the past. I'll keep an eye on it and, uh, and update everyone because I agree it is a, it's interesting because it's rare. 
most of you probably have heard of or remember the McDonald's hot coffee case from the 90s. If not, go ahead and Google it. It was, to me, the first lawsuit that I actually remember um, learning about. And this was, I would have been like six years old when the hot coffee case was in the news, like six or eight years old around then. I remember it was the hot coffee case and it was the OJ trial, or like the two things that are like in my mind is like learning what a lawsuit was. Back in the 90s, there was a woman who spilled a, a cup of boiling hot, what turns out to be like boiling hot coffee on her lap. She suffered actually a lot of horrendous injuries because of it. Um, there was a lawsuit, there's punitive damages awarded, uh, and a lot of people didn't like that. It, it was kind of a, a cultural touchstone for a while. I, like the late night TV host like poked fun at her for spilling coffee on herself. Um, but when you look into it further, it, it turns out, you know, there may have actually been some wrongdoing here. Anyways, it's worth it, it's a it's a great cultural touchstone of the, the 90s. If you want to put yourself in that headspace. Finally, we have our own version now. Um, us uh, millennials and, and uh, I guess the younger generations, we have our own um, McDonald's hot food case. And this is a hot chicken nugget. On May 12th, which is today as we're recording this, a jury in Fort Lauderdale found that McDonald's and the franchise operator for the specific McDonald's are liable for an injury that allegedly occurred when a McDonald's chicken nugget fell onto a girl's leg, causing second-degree burns. The girl was, I believe, four years old at the time. Um, Jury found McDonald's liable for failing to provide instructions for handling hot food. The franchise operator liable for negligence and failing to warn customers about the hot food. And here's kind of just a quick and dirty summary of the facts here. Um, The mother of the injured daughter, her name is uh, uh, Miss Holmes, bought her daughter a Happy Meal. The girl was about four years old. She handed her the Happy Meal. uh, And then as the car drove away, the little girl started screaming. Miss Holmes took photos and videos from immediately after the accident showing the burn and the child's screams were actually played in court. Uh, the child is uh, autistic and she did not testify. Um, what's interesting is both sides actually agreed that the nugget, the chicken nugget caused the burns. There wasn't a dispute on, you know, kind of the key facts on liability here uh, or on causation at least. Um, they fought over how hot the chicken nugget actually was. McDonald's said it was no more than 160 degrees. The plaintiff said it was over 200 degrees. Regardless, they agree that this chicken nugget burn um the second degree burn in her leg which is a partial thickness burn of the epidermis and dermis and as we sit here today the case has been bifurcated on liability and damages this was the liability trial so we know that there is liability the actual second trial is set for this summer on damages alone and when i came across this case i was just transported back to being you know seven or eight years old and listening to my dad complain about how a uh, a woman can spill hot coffee on herself and get a hundred million dollars, and how that was, uh, you know, that wasn't fair, etc. And uh, then I went to law school and learned all about that case, and now now we got our own to think about, Luke. That's right, I, and same. So my dad, you know, firefighter, captain on the fire department, growing up, you know, big proponent of personal responsibility, and so he. He's kind of that guy that's like, look, this, that's what this country has come to. This is America these days. You know, you can just, right. <laughs> you know, go stub your toe and sue someone for $200 million. It's like, yeah, dad, you know, were you sitting on the jury? No. All right. You have no idea what you're talking about. You know, the, the facts of that coffee case are actually pretty compelling if you if you actually dig into it. But yeah, the PR spin around it um, uh, made it. It was look- like spoofed on like Saturday Night Live and like Letterman. Like they made fun of this woman for like years after this. I mean, the PR that that McDonald's was able to pull off is 
you know, pretty impressive <laughs> from their perspective, especially after like the, you know, $100 million verdict or whatever it was. So I'm wondering, yeah, I mean, I, again, this, this is the same sort of situation, right? I don't, I don't really know the facts of this case, but man, if, if a chicken nugget is putting like second degree burns on your leg, uh, you know, I don't call me crazy, but that's too hot. Right, Jack? Yeah, it shouldn't have. <laughs> it's like, regardless of what happened, you know, how it ended up on the girl's leg, like you shouldn't be handed a, a radioactive chicken nugget, you know, like <laughs> by any, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that hot, like no matter what. <laughs> um, right. And if it is like, let it sit for a minute before you give it to the, to the, the customer, like let it sit. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I actually, especially because McDonald's appears to have rolled over on, you know, on the causation aspect and, and, and the fact that it did cause a burn in my mind, I'm like, well, it's, it's a happy meal, which means it's, it's, it's got a little toy in it. It's like intended for little kids, you know, um, that in particular jumps out to me as like a factor. I didn't see it discussed in anything I read, but I bet it was a trial that this was like a product that's designed and marketed towards little kids. And then you're going to put like an actual on fire piece of meat in there and hand it to them. Like it's only a matter of time before someone gets burned. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. I'm really interested in the damages portion of this trial. Um, hope the little girl's okay, obviously. Uh, but I'll, I'll be interested to see if there's a discussion on punitives, um, the same way that there was in the original hot coffee case. And then I'll be interested to see if the media, um, how they spin it this time around and see, you know, whether things have even changed at all since the nineties. So that's something interesting that you raised here and maybe, Maybe that's something that you can explain for the listeners, Jack. So there's compensatory damages and then there's punitive damages. So even if the injury itself isn't horrible, right? I mean, or it's it's not permanent, it's temporary. There's compensatory damages for that. Uh, but the really big numbers come out when you're talking about punitive damages. It's two different things. Yeah, and and there's you know there's there's case law on this which describes when each is appropriate and when. Uh, what types of cases where punitive damages could even be sought. But in general, in an injury case, um, in most states, there's a heightened pleading standard, a heightened standard of proof. You have to show something on the lines of like willful and wanton conduct or reckless disregard, which is a step higher than negligence. Um, so you can't, you can't get punitives if you prove that it was, there was just a breach of a duty of care. You have to prove that that breach was caused by a, uh, neglect to the level of being willful. Um, and so you'll get punitives in cases where the tortfeasor, the, the bad actor, the person who's at fault, um, maybe knew that this bad thing was going to happen and, and did it anyways. Um, so in the famous, you know, hot coffee case, uh, the punitives in that case were based on the fact that lots of other people had been burned by the scalding hot coffee and they just continued to hand it out anyways, but they didn't change their practices. And then there was more evidence. I believe that the, te the temperature in that coffee was like at that uh, temp to dissuade people from taking advantage of the limitless refills um, <laughs> because like, because the coffee took so long to cool down because it was practically boiling that like you'd have to sit there all morning if you wanted to get a refill. Um, and so that was like the basis for the punitives in that case. In this case, I don't know. I mean, I, I have no idea, but uh, yeah, I, I, I suspect that there will be a discussion on uh, punitives, um, you know, if one goes to trial in, uh, I think it's set for trial in July.
Thanks, everyone. That's the show. Reminder, you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your, your podcasts. Uh, new episodes drop every other Tuesday, and we'll talk to you next week.